Welcome again to Music Educated, a new educational resource for young, aspiring musicians, which provides perspectives from others in the music field so that they can navigate how to move into a musical career. Like always, I am Tyler Mead, the host for this podcast, and I've had the great opportunity to have different conversations with my peers, mentors, and other professionals in the music field so that those young musicians have another resource they can turn to as they begin to work through creating their musical career. This week I am joined by one of my most influential mentors and someone I am so lucky to call a friend now, Dr. Vincent Craig. Dr. Craig is a professor of piano at Westchester University who has a passion for working with young pianists and musicians to prepare them for careers in the music field. Today you will hear us talk about topics about growth and how to deal with anxiety in the music field and performance. Another special topic we discuss is what it is like for him, a person of color, to be working in academia and also ways he believes we need to change in order to affect change in the predominantly white field of academia, especially in music. So, please enjoy this week's episode of Music Educated with Dr. Vincent Craig. First, thank you for coming on to um, kind of have this conversation and kind of share your perspectives on what you're doing in the music field and uh, talk a little bit about academia and uh, kind of how you've gotten into that. So can you tell the listeners a little bit about your journey into academia, uh, what schools you kind of went to and what kind of led you to want to be in academia and be an educator? Oh, okay. Well, I, I think in some ways, Education was uh, was sort of in my DNA because my mother was in education. My mother was a special education teacher for many years and in the New York City public schools. And that's where I grew up in Staten Island, New York. And, you know, she went through um, several years where she was a, a teacher's aide before that, a paraprofessional. And and. Then she had a whole other life before that, working for the New York, uh, working for New York Telephone. My mother was a telephone operator for many years, um, and then decided to go back to school and go to go into edu- education. So um, there was always that sort of, and also watching my mother go to school um, because you know she was a non-traditional student herself when she went to college and raising three sons at the time and working full time and then going to school at night. So there was always this um, role model in my family for that level of that kind of achievement and just determination to uh, do a whole lot of things. You know, when that's a lot of responsibility to raise a family and then have a full time job and then, oh, by the way, I'm going to I'm going to school, too. And uh, in fact, she ended up earning three degrees that way, an associate degree, and then a bachelor's, and then a master's degree in special education, eventually. Oh. Um, 
So I, I was witness to all of that, watching, you know, watching my mother go to school when I was growing up. The, yeah. uh, oh, go ahead. In terms of how you got into music and, um, when did you kind of know that that was uh, a path that you wanted to, to go down, uh, the music realm and teaching at a college? You know, I think that was sort of formed pretty early on too, because, um, you know, the, the whole music thing was, uh, something that was just always a part of me because I started at such a young age and the music was, I think the music was in me from long before I was a musician because that was my parents luckily were music lovers and they exposed me to so much great music from birth really. So, uh, you know, that was always a part of our, just a part of our household was the fact that we were exposed to classical music and uh, you know we all were I, I i guess i took to it the most of, of my siblings but um you know there was always this desire to be around music and the arts and i loved it so much and i was able to luckily i was able to begin formal study at an early age so um you know i was never thinking you know i I guess in the early years, I was just thinking about how wonderful it would be to be able to play the piano, because the piano was my first instrument, and to make music. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't necessarily thinking right away about a career path necessarily. Um, and I'll, I'll say something about that later, but um, about career paths. And it's funny how things end up, or things, how things play out relative to the way you expect them to or the way you want them to right um let, let's talk about uh some of those challenges that you might have found along the way in particular uh what was conservatory life like and who were some of the mentors that helped guide you uh as a person of color in this in this country and in a predominantly white field of academia in America? Well, you know, at the conservatory, so I was at Oberlin Conservatory, it was my, my first stop um, when I was an undergraduate. <clears throat> and, um, and I had a wonderful teacher there. Her name was Frances Walker. And uh, Frances Walker had a pretty illustrious performing career. And then she was also, um, uh, was the first African-American woman uh, ever to be a tenured member of the conservatory faculty. In fact, uh, she's the only one. <laughs> she's the only one. Um, there haven't been any, there hasn't been any since then. But, um, you know, it was very significant uh, because I had, I had not had, uh, I had had wonderful training up to that point, but um, I had really encountered very few African-American pianists and I had encountered and none of my teachers had been African-American and um, you know she was from an earlier time an earlier generation and so um, I learned a lot pretty quickly about her story and uh, some of the things that she 
faced, you know, in her, her formative years, um, both as a student, as a child, in her early teaching career, in her performing career. Um, and so I think with, through her, there was several things, the, the, the role model, the positive role model, but also just uh, the encouragement, um, a lot of tough love, uh, a lot of tough love. And, and so you had to have a very thick skin because, you know, she was very honest and she was not going to, she knew that she was not doing you any favors by sugarcoating or, or, you know, trying, just trying to pump you up all the time and say that everything was wonderful. And she, you know, if you didn't meet her expectations, if you were, if you disappointed her, she, she told you that and she made no bones about that. And, um, I, I, I think for, you know, for many years after I was a student, uh, I think I was in many ways, I was still trying to, uh, I think I was still trying to win her approval of, of, about many of the things that I did, even in my, as I went on and had a professional life of my own. So, um, she was certainly at the top of my list for the, the people who inspired me at that, at that level. Um, it was a new world for me. I mean, I had been around a lot of good musicians because I had gone to a magnet school in New York where there were a lot of a lot of fine fine people in all the arts um, and and some of them are actually quite famous now in various aspects of, of the arts um, but you know it was really something to go to that environment where you know there was a conservatory within a liberal arts college so you had people who were brilliant and people who were talented all in the same place. Um, and there I was trying to find my way, trying to find my own potential, figure out what my potential was and just working as hard as I could to, to find my way in this field and see if this is really what I was called to do, if, if this was really what I was meant to do. So uh, it was really, a wonderful experience that I wouldn't, I wouldn't change if I had to do anything over again. Absolutely. I think those experiences and that kind of mentorship um, that you found in Francis Walker, I'm sure guided some of your teaching as well uh, as an educator at a university now. Um, what do you think uh, are the key aspects of music and life that you kind of try to teach your students um, as an educator um, now? Well, there are several things, and I, <clears throat> I think it kind of goes in layers. I think the first thing is that I want everyone to learn, A, the, the, the umbrella term would be learn your craft, and which means being able to play the piano as well as being able to be the best musician as possible, because I think those are two different things. You know, um, I think it's possible to I think it's possible to play the piano well, quote unquote, air quotes, um, even and not necessarily be a great musician. I know people are gonna people are gonna jump all over me after saying that, but but um, you know the musicianship is is a whole other dimension of, of playing an instrument. So I'm doing a lot of things and you know, um, 
I know that sometimes I, I, I'll get a, a very gifted student who is very motivated and works very hard. Sometimes I get a gifted student who maybe has a lot of raw talent, but maybe didn't have the kind of early formative training that I had. And so my job then is to try to bring that person along, try to play catch up really, and also try to get them to use their imagination to develop their musicianship and also to teach them how to teach themselves. I think you, the, one of the most important things you can learn from a teacher is the process. Um, the process of, of how to uh, use your imagination, of how to, how to come up with good fingerings, how to come up with, uh, how to come up with problems, uh, 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 solutions to technical problems that you're having with just uh, execution on the instrument. So uh, the other thing is that making my students realize that their life experiences will really inform their musicianship and that the things that we the things that we take for granted as human beings uh, are really an integral part of who we are as musicians and so there's an awful lot and you know everybody's story is different and so you know now as a, a teaching an undergraduate who might be a traditionally might be 18 or 19 years old when they come to me they all have a different story and they've all come from different backgrounds and so um, you know, everybody has a different way of tapping into or even dealing with human emotion and everybody's had a different life experience. And so, you know, sometimes if I'm talking about a piece of music that has some emotional depth, um, and it's maybe a place that 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 student has never gone before if they've never experienced personal tragedy, if they have never experienced loss, grief, disappointment. Uh, and of course, these are things that uh, transcend any, any, any demographic, right? You could be, you could be wealthy, rich, whatever you want to, whatever the demographic is, um, you know, a person of color or not, doesn't matter. These are, common ground for all human beings. We all experience a wide range of emotions. And so um, trying to use the, those feelings, trying to use those, those emotions to express ourselves in music is, a, is something that you, know, you have to be able to do um, in order to really free yourself and, and to make an interpretation. And that's the other thing is that, you know, I, I want my students to be individuals and so um, what happens after a while is that I give, I sort of give the model, I, I, like I say, tell a story with the music. Um, but eventually um, I let them do more of their own thing. And so I, I, it, it doesn't satisfy me if someone plays, uh, interprets or plays a piece of music exactly the way I would do it. And I'm less and less interested. The more I teach, the less and less interested I am in that. Because, uh, and, and I find that if I have 
stimulated that student to use their imagination, they come up with ideas that are personal and that are their own and that will make their interpretation of a piece of music individual and unique to them. So they don't need to be a carbon copy of me or anybody else. Right. And I, I think a lot of times um, when undergrads and other college students are going through this process of trying to develop their musicianship, we often get caught up in the technical aspect of there are so many notes on the page that we have to learn um, that we kind of lose sight of what music actually is. And it's not just these notes on the page that we have to play exactly right every single time. Yes, precision is is great and um, it helps us uh, display what we're trying to display through the music. But I think that's something we definitely lose track of as students um, mm -hmm. is, is that sort of uh, musicianship uh, instead of uh, or we try to get this technical aspect instead of going after the musicianship. Mm. And of course, you know, I, the one of the things that I see, of course, is that a lot of times uh, that happens because the students become overwhelmed, you know, because suddenly they have, uh, they are being asked to learn an entire sonata and not just a movement. And, you know, suddenly they have to do a prelude and a fugue from the well-tempered clavier. And there's a timetable, right? Because we're doing juries every semester. So suddenly um, they have to learn, uh, they have to memorize and present this music in three months, basically, uh, as opposed to working on it for the, you know, they may have practiced the program they auditioned with for a year or more before they came to us. And so um, teaching how to practice it becomes another thing. Well, how, how, how are you going to learn all those notes? Um, and we, I have this conversation with many students. All right, well, how are we going to learn all these notes without you getting overwhelmed? And how are we going to get you through all three movements of this sonata or all of this, this prelude and fugue in its entirety? Um, how do we keep from getting bogged down? How do we get from, uh, how do we get from getting stuck on, and this is what happens, you know, for the undergrads become the, often become the worst perfectionists and they work like mad and they learn the, they learn the first page of every piece to perfection and then the end never gets learned sometimes unless you push them because they get bogged down and it's got to be perfect and well i haven't gotten to the i haven't gotten to the last page yet i can't tell you how many lessons i've i've given where um student is playing beautifully pieces memorized and then we turn to the last page and two measures in well i didn't get to this part yet what do you mean it's one page it's less than one page well i'm still working on that part. i was like well okay um, so, so, you know, I, I'm teaching them how to do this. I'm teaching them how to, how to cover more ground, you know? Um, yeah. Um, 
how how have you been able to grow as an educator in giving that knowledge to students and giving them uh, ways to accomplish what you're you're trying to get them to accomplish? And how do you find new ways to becoming a better educator now? Well, I'll tell you one. The, the, the first thing is. I keep learning myself and I keep learning, I keep studying myself and I keep looking at, I keep listening to interpretations of pieces that I've never heard before. And I'm learning new repertoire every single year. I'm still at it. I'm still a student. I'm going to be a student for the rest of my life as long as I can play the piano because the, that's helping me grow. And, you know, Having taught you is is it has given me new tools for the for the students that I'm working with now, and you know you get a lot more from me than you would have gotten from me in 2000, uh, you know, 15 years ago or 20 years ago. So it's a growth thing, and knowing that there's knowing that there's being aware of what you don't know, you know, and I think that's what makes makes you a better teacher is that you you have successes and you have you know not failures but things that are less successful and so you realize what those things are and you also realize that one size does not fit all and you through experience you realize that there are different ways to motivate and and help different types of students grow how would you, or how do you kind of um, help students realize that it is a process? Because we're we're so focused on the perfection now that we lose sight of uh, maintaining that steady uh, progress and staying on the process. Um, how do you kind of help students build that skill? I think it's important to give them as many goals as possible other than an ultimate goal. Well, you have to do your senior recital next semester. Well, it's yeah, that's great, but okay, but we have to play, that means we have to play as many pieces in public before we get to that senior recital and feel comfortable doing that as possible, right? So encouraging my students, you know, giving them as many opportunities to perform as possible. And the ones who are facile readers and can learn music quickly, and they want to do a lot of collaborative piano, you know, I tell them that they should, they really need to do this. And yes, play, play with lots of singers and play with wind instruments and, and learn as much as you can learn about shaping and phrasing from singers and from wind players and i think that's that's definitely something i um one of my strengths because i work with so many singers mm -hmm. and it is putting that breath into playing the piano it's not a wind instrument but that doesn't mean we shouldn't breathe with the music i think that's right. something that i definitely learned from you uh but also working with singers and having voice lessons myself and being in choir and being in these 
exposing myself to these different uh, experiences uh, performing. And you play a wind instrument. True. I have not played French horn in probably four years now. Oh, is that right? I, I think I stopped my end of my junior year playing horn for concert band. I didn't realize that. Um, I tried picking up a horn last year. Um, well, you probably had to start from scratch at that I point. I was like, oh my gosh, I sound terrible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, brass is hard. It, but I, I, I hadn't lost that, that sense of breath. Right. So, yeah, that's, that's definitely a good point. And that was something, and that was something that my teacher told me too. You know, because I was playing um, as an undergrad. I was um, once people found out that I could learn music quickly. I was quickly surrounded by the the best string players. Some of the best string players in the school wanted wanted me to play for their junior and senior recitals. I was a freshman. You know, she said, "Play for some singers too." Um, and somehow I, I didn't get to do it, get around to doing as much of that until later on, but I did get there. Uh, I did get there. Um, but I think one of the things that also kept me on a good upward trajectory in terms of my growth was that um, I became a very diversified musician. I, I was a pianist and then I was an organist and I was a, a cellist and... Um, um, at, for many years, my, my actual career path, or what I thought I wanted to do, uh, was not to be a pianist, I wanted to be an orchestral conductor. And so I learned very early on, even before I went to music school, uh, I learned about the orchestra and I, then I started playing the cello and, and I learned how to read orchestral scores and I taught myself how to read alto and tenor clef so that I could read orchestral scores easily and and started learning about how all the instruments transpose and what the ranges were and that sort of thing. Um, so it was just a, a sort of a natural foray into things that I ended up doing in my professional life later on. Um, side note, did you ever see Bernstein conduct since you you grew up New York City um not live hmm. not live because he had, uh, he had he had moved on when I by the time I started going to concerts he had moved on as a regular figure in New York uh he had left the New York Philharmonic and he had he was he had been succeeded by Pierre Boulez briefly and then Zubin Mehta so uh, I, all, my, all fine conductors in their own sense. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And 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 some of the guest people who came in those days. I mean, I, I always tell the story about uh, you know the first time I saw Andre Watts play with the New York Philharmonic. There was a guest conductor, uh, and his name was Eric Leinsdorf. And Eric Leinsdorf was a a fantastic, a very famous uh, conductor of that generation. And he was associated with the Boston Symphony for many years. Yeah, I'm doing a um, research project on Leonard Bernstein's unanswered question lecture series. Oh, yes. And uh, I, it, the question just came to my mind because I knew you grew up in that time period where right. you might have seen him. Mm -hmm. um, I do want to move, you, you talked about 
diver diversifying kind of your skill set. I want to talk about diversity in a different uh, sense, and that is seeing diversity in academia. Mm -hmm. um, in what ways do you hope to see academia change to be more uh, inclusive and express more diverse ideas and diversity as a whole in the field? Well, you know, that's a, that's a big can of worms. And it's so a huge I, question. It, it's a huge question. And, and it's not going to, and it's not going to yield the answer that you might expect. Um, what I would say is that, um, that I want to see, I, I think that there will, the, the diversity that you're talking about will probably happen. But as a result of not people like me, but, but by the people that I teach, some of the people who leave my school and become secondary educators, um, and particularly those who are going, who are teaching in places where their populations are diverse, um, and in large urban areas, perhaps inner cities. Um, you know, I never thought much about, I, of course, I never thought much about diversity when I was growing up because I, I grew up in a diverse, you know, New York City is about as diverse as you're going to get. Um, but in terms of what I do and this field of music, then that, that, that sort of pairs things down uh, because uh, I can tell you that, you know, going to, um, going to music school, for example, um, at Oberlin Conservatory, uh, there were there were very very few African American pianists or or, or pianists of color, um, and there were actually more singers in that in those areas, uh, I would say, than there were in in keyboard or or brass and that sort of thing. So there's a trickle down effect, right? Um, and I can tell you, uh, I was on a search committee for a faculty position, and um, I, I don't recall at this point, I mean, this was some years ago, but, but honestly, I don't recall that there were any, uh, any people of color that made, it to the, uh, that made it to the final round, maybe one. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I grew up, you know, certainly as a pianist, not seeing, not seeing that many people of color doing what I was doing, um, and of course, when you look at the at the top of the the top of that field, um, being the concert, the solo concert pianist um, of the same level of of a Lang Lang or Marta Argerich or something like that, there was there was. Um, Andre Watts, who I, I met at an early and heard perform at an early age. So there was a, there was another a big, huge role model. Uh, but really, at, in, by growing up, it was Andre Watts and you saw, you know, Natalie Hinderas and and of course, Frances Walker was out there and her brother, George, um, who had not at that point had not even uh, 
I made some of his greatest achievements, such as winning a Pulitzer Prize. That came much later. Um, so, you know, I think I, I would love to see, you know, um, I, I would love to see more, more students of color coming to music school. Um, I think that's where it's going to start. I mean, maybe more, um, more programs that are not falling under the chopping block in, in inner cities where music and arts are being cut back and that sort of thing. So, um, who knows? Um, you know, there are, you could, you could look at it from both ends. Um, I don't claim to have any solutions to that problem, but I think, you know, systemically, I think it starts with, with education and providing resources, providing diverse resources to diverse students. Yeah. Um, that's actually exactly what I hope that you, you, you said about that subject. It's definitely all a, it's not necessarily a trickle down, but it's really a build up yeah. uh, from the bottom it, and elementary ed um, going into secondary ed so that we can, we can start to encourage um, students to be a part of, of this community, this field, um, because it is for everyone. They have so, um, there's a culture there that I don't think I will ever truly understand, um, but I can understand that what they have to bring to the table is equally or even more so uh, beneficial to the entire field uh, in general. Yes. Um, moving towards uh, your performing uh, side of your career, are, we've had this conversation uh, many of times trying to work through performance anxiety and, and whatnot. Um, are there times when you deal with thoughts of self-doubt when performing? And if so, how do you think younger students can work through some of these uh, same feelings of inadequacy in the music field? Uh, yes, I, I, I still deal with them and uh, I probably always will. And I think there are, uh, the first thing is to be as well prepared as possible and learning, you know, just like when, you know, if you have, if you, if you suffer from a general kind of anxiety, you have coping mechanisms that you adapt, that you learn to deal with those anxieties when they arise. And so if it's a performance anxiety, then there's a whole litany of things that, that are going to be useful because uh, a, lot of, <clears throat> a lot of times the performance anxiety can manifest itself in different ways. It, it could be a memory slip. For some people, it's just, you know, sheer panic and I can't even, I can't even leave the wings to walk out the stage to go to the piano. Um, that's the severe end of it, unfortunately. Um, so, uh, having, I think the first thing is never to have an expectation that there will never be any nerves, that there will not be 
that that everything will be uh, always comfortable. It's not it, for some of us. It's never comfortable, um, you know. And for some of us, it changes. I know that the amount of performance anxiety that I've experienced, you know, has certainly gone up as I've gotten older. And I think part of that is because you have a different perspective on the world. You know that you you know that first of all you have. Um, greater expectations of yourself because you've learned more and then the other thing that is going on is that life has happened your life has evolved and so you're not you're not as easily able to put together those those hours in the practice room that you were able to do when you were an undergraduate and and it was easy uh, and it was and it may have been easy um, as long as you have the discipline, it may have been easy to find four to six hours a day to practice the piano or practice your major instrument. Um, but that may be, that may not be as realistic or as easy when you when you add a full time job, when you add a family, when you add other kinds of responsibilities, maybe other other work, other professional responsibilities. So. Um, knowing how to become as efficient as possible with your preparation and having other things in place other than the benefits that you get from putting in lots and lots of hours at the piano. Um, and by that, of course, yes, I'm talking about muscle memory. So muscle memory is there. It's important, but you know, it's not always reliable in a performance. It's, and a lot of people rely only on muscle memory and they don't cope as many of them don't cope as well with performance anxiety and performance situations and so you know having every note in its place um, really understanding structure understanding harmony um, and also having the ears engaged at all times you have to listen for you know and one of the one of the best things i ever heard one of the best things of all the things that I heard Leon Fleischer say, you know, it was a very simple line. He said, you have to listen for it. And to me, I, that's my favorite thing that I ever heard him say, because um, so, so often we go into autopilot and we play, we learn those notes and then we stop listening. So that once there is that superficial learning of the notes and memorizing of the score that sometimes if you don't listen that's as good as it's going to be it's not going to be expressive it's not going to be artistic and it's not even maybe not going to be very interesting for the listener so you have to engage that all the time and that's something that you have to practice you have to practice listening to yourself you know um what, what is your thought uh, now? I know it, it's a very useful skill to learn, uh, mem and I'm talking about memorizing music. What is your thought now of using music in a performance uh, so that you kind of eliminate that stress of, of memory slips? I think that there's there is some 
I, I think that that should be used. I have nothing against that. I have nothing against that. Um, I think, but I think there is a way to use it to be more effective. Um, because I just think that, again, the dimension of the reading, having the score, you know, the, the danger is, my danger, my, the thing I worry about with, with students playing from score is that they don't get to the core of the music and they don't get to the point where they listen. And um, I've often said, yes, well, let them perform with memory, but make sure that they know it every note first. In other words, that, that, that there comes a point where, yes, in a lesson uh, or in a, in a series of lessons, you still need to present that music from memory, even if you're going to use it for a performance. And, and then there's a whole process, you know, and, and, and playing from playing a performance, especially if it's a complicated piece, playing with music is a skill too, right? Um, and, and I think, you know, having striking a balance between where your eye, where your eye will spend most of its time. And so if you're playing uh, music where you are using as a reference for a complicated harmonic passage or something like that, I think it, it can be useful, but I think it has to be very carefully choreographed in order to gain maximum uh, maximum benefit, you know, that you have to know, you have to know what you're looking at rather than a performance where you're just, where you just have the music in front of you and your eyes are glued to the score for, from beginning to end. I, I think that could be, you know, that could be a, a making for a very dull performance in, for some people. Right. And I brought it up. I remember, um, we watched a video of, uh, Leon Fleischer, um, playing was it the c minor sonata schubert yes with a score right and i also remember you used a score for the concerto that you played a couple years ago correct yes that's right so i just wanted to kind of hear what you had to say about using the score in a performance uh and kind of uh, that aspect of, of things yes and you know that was <clears throat> That was a, uh, and that, that concerto you're referring to was, you know, again, there was a, um, you know, it was an unknown work and although very accessible, it was romantic in style, very accessible, the Enrique Soro uh, grand, concert, grand Concerto in D, um, but also with an orchestra, uh, it was a, a very good community orchestra that I had not worked with before. And we had, what, I think two rehearsals. So um, very, very expedient. You know, I flew to, it was out of town. I had to fly out to do this. And I think it was really, I think I, I recall now, it was actually, there were two rehearsals and one of them was the day of the concert. So um, they had done their prep. They were very well prepared, but uh, they, I came in during the week and we had a midweek rehearsal. I think it was a Wednesday evening maybe. And um, it, was not, it was not on the piano that 
Um, it, it was we, we had to rehearse in a school. I was using an upright piano that didn't have much projection, and the orchestra barely fit into this room we were in. And um, so I only had one rehearsal with on the actual piano that I was using for the concert in the space. Um, so it really, so I really needed, uh, you know, so I needed that for myself because, um, you know, I had learned the orchestration as best I could, but I was, I was learning it from a piano vocal, uh, a piano reduction and not a, uh, and not a full score. There, there, there was one recording, a very old recording of that piece from the early sixties that I was able to listen to, which gave me some. Uh, a heads up about some of the orchestral colors, um, but yes, that 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 made it in certainly very helpful for me for ensemble, um, because it, it certainly was what it wasn't because the concerto was because of the level of difficulty of the concerto. It was because of the, you know, trying to make the best musical statement possible and feel comfortable interacting with how with how I was going to interact with the orchestra and with my conductor. Absolutely. Um, so playing that concerto, uh, a concerto that it was the United States premiere. Is that correct? It was. Yes. Um, playing a piece that isn't uh, necessarily well known or known at all in this case um, is sort of one of your specialties that I've found is just finding these unique pieces uh, and and performing them. Um, researching and learning and performing music by composers of African descent is something that you are obviously passionate about. Um, what are you trying to accomplish personally or academically by playing this music? Well, I think there was a point where <clears throat> I didn't know, uh, you know, they say ignorance is bliss. And, um, you know, my father had been sort of an amateur pianist and taken piano lessons. And so uh, Juba by Nathaniel Dett was simply uh, part of the the music that was in the piano bench when I was a kid. And I didn't even know, you know, as a child, I didn't even know that that Nathaniel Dett was a black composer. I, I found that out later on. So when I made the connection that uh, later on with Francis Walker, who had, had sort of championed a lot of this music and who of course was the sister of a, uh, a very renowned uh, African-American composer, George Walker. And this all happened at once, meeting her and uh, looking at some of the things that she had done, and then also shortly afterward being introduced to her brother's music, because I was I was I was interested. I immediately took to her brother's early piano music, and uh, I wanted I wanted to play that, you know. Um, and it's like I, it never occurred to me. Um, I didn't know that that. I would go this far as far as I have with this this interest, but the the thing is that first and foremost, it was just it was really came down to what I felt about the music. If the music hadn't been quality, 
then it wouldn't have mattered who wrote it. I wouldn't have been interested. Um, there are a lot of things by very famous composers that I have no interest in learning, really. Um, even things that I think are, are worthy and are great pieces, but just don't, just for myself, I'm not interested. Um, because I, I would rather hear someone else play them who has done, uh, a, 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 has a certain aspect or has a certain perspective on this music that, that I don't think I can, I can come up with anything that is unique or that is special about my own, you know. So, yeah, there are always pieces on your bucket list that you want to learn, the, the, the list of the, your favorite five concertos that you want to learn or your favorite romantic sonatas, you know. But, um, but yeah, so the music of black composers has just been... Um, uh, it's, the thing is, yes, it's what I love about, about it not only is the fact that I can find so much music of quality, but... I want to move people when I play the piano and this music has the power to do that. And it's not only because it's, they don't know it, it's because it's, it's really that good and because people should know it. And um, I'll never forget playing a recital where I included music of Bach and Chopin and um, there was someone else. Bach and Chopin and I can't remember. Oh, Liszt. And I played Liszt. And the thing that people... Traditional etude, right? Uh, right. Uh, no, that was a different... Well, no, that was a different... different not that list. This was uh, one of the St. Francis legends. Uh, St. Francis of Paul walking on the waves. And the thing that people talked about most on that recital was the three fours of Samuel Coleridge Taylor. And that was what people, you know, after playing a Chopin scherzo, I played a Chopin scherzo and I, I played a Bach English suite and that sort of thing. But yes, so um, yeah, it's striking, you know, when you place and that if you program these pieces well, and you select the best quality music possible that you, you you're going to have an effect on that on people and, and you commit to it you commit to it just as you would commit to playing a chopin nocturne or a mendelssohn song without words or a brahms intermezzo absolutely i think one of those uh pieces that you've kind of introduced uh to me and is a really big part of um, music that I enjoy to listen to and get my hands into is the um, the Burley uh, from the Southland, those six pieces. Um, before I even heard those, my favorite hymn um, just from the church hymnal was My Lord, What a Morning. And so it just captivated me deeply because it had it had this moving um quality to it mm -hmm. um and i i think that is definitely something that um the music that you're presenting does for people um is, is move them to their core to experience music in a different way 
than yes. we traditionally have listening to Beethoven or Mozart or Schubert or Liszt or uh, Rachmaninoff. Mm-hmm. It just has this different, different quality to it. You'd be, you know, it's funny. Uh, ever since, ever since I added the Florence Price piano sonata in E minor to my repertoire, I, I am staggered at how much I'm hearing about Florence Price now, how much I'm hearing her music on the radio. Right. It's, it's been a huge, huge change. And I've seen that in the last couple of years, hearing about Florence Price as well. And it yeah. really started to happening after uh, you started playing it. And coincidence, I'm not sure, but it, it, different um, things are so moving uh, that it brings attention to some of these composers that need to be um, highlighted. That's right. That's right. Um, it, it's sort of like, I don't know if this ever happens to you, but you get a new car and suddenly you see that same car, same color, driving down the street about 20 different times. That happens to me all the time. I got my new car. I'm like, wow, everyone has this new car. It's like you play this this one piece and now um, people are talking about this composer as they very well should be. That's right. And one of the things that is really incredible about her is that we are still scratching the surface about her input, her output, because they are still finding more and more of her compositions that were never published, that are still in manuscript, and that are just now being available for the public, for public consumption, because they were, you know, they were finding boxes. Uh, she had a home out in Illinois in the su- suburbs of um, Chicago and the, the house was actually in ruins and abandoned and the new owners found these boxes and boxes of manuscripts and luckily thought to do something with them and got them to the right people so they were not lost. Um, but it's incredible how prolific she was um, and so amongst all the pieces that we already know of hers, there are still more things that are going to be coming into the forefront now because uh, we're, more of her stuff is getting published. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that, that's happened a lot with uh, a, a lot of African-American composers is that there, there were a lot of things that just never got published. Um, and I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, I play some pieces by Margaret Bonds that she wrote. Now, Margaret Bonds actually was, was one of Florence Price's students. And a couple of, there are several things that are actually dedicated to um, Margaret Bonds. Her, her, uh, Florence Price dedicated her fantasy negra to Margaret Bonds. But... Um, I have some pieces that I play by Florence, by, uh, excuse me, by Margaret Bonds that were just kind of floating around in manuscript for decades. And um, one of them, you know, we, we all, many of us have heard her troubled water. Well, there was, that was actually part of a spiritual suite. And there were two more pieces that were uh, available not in publication, but only in manuscript. And so um, 
when I, again, when I was studying with Miss Walker, um, I learned those pieces. She gave me that music, I don't know, maybe right after I, maybe right after I graduated from Oberlin. So I've, I've known about those pieces for 30 years. And just last year or, or the year before was when I finally heard that those pieces were being published. So these, these manuscripts have been floating around. They're photocopies. They're in Margaret Bond's hand. And, um, you know, now, um, you know, sometime soon they'll be available in publication. But I've, I've, been, I've been performing them and, and known about them for decades. Are you hoping um, that this music becomes part of the canon which um, professors teach and students learn? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, it's, it happens in baby steps. Uh, and I, I always recount uh, a, a, an experience I had as a graduate student at Peabody where I was taking a uh, music history course and I remarked to the professor that we had not, it appeared that we were going to go through this whole semester and not study a single piece of music by an African-American composer. So the next time I walked into class, there was an orchestral piece playing on the radio. He just had it playing on, it was a CD, I guess. And I walked in and he just had the music playing while we were walking in. And he started the class by turning off the CD and he said, does anybody know what this piece of music is? I said, and so I raised my hand and I said, well, you know, I'm not entirely sure, but to me, it sounds like music of William Grant Still. And he, his eyes lit up and he said, bravo. And it was William Grant Still. But that shows you that, and I didn't know the particular piece, but it shows you that there was a quality in his music that I was able to recognize his writing style, just like, just like I could, you, you, anybody could recognize a, a Brahms symphony versus a Mozart symphony or a Haydn symphony. You know, there were just certain qualities about the harmonic language and the colors, uh, even the way he used the orchestra that were, that were very, very um, signature for that composer. Yeah, I, I think the more that we can implement um, these pieces into the canon in which we learn music theory and history and performing these pieces, um, the more that we can start to affect that change from the bottom up that we talked about uh, and impact the syst uh, systematic, systematic change that we're looking for in the music field. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I want to thank you, Dr. Craig, for um, being a part of this conversation. We had a ton that we talked about, an hour's worth of uh, material that we kind of worked through and, and talked about. And it, it's so awesome to hear your perspectives and be able to share your perspectives uh, with the listeners of this podcast. So I just want to thank you again. Oh, well, listen, thank you for asking me to do this. I'm so, so glad to be able to have an opportunity to talk about this and, and, 
you know, and also I'm, I'm, you know, just very proud that, you know, as my former student, you've taken an interest in this and you have a, uh, you know, a focus on uh, bringing, giving something unique and contributing something special to our field by investigating some of these topics. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's something that I've needed and I hope it's something that other people uh, need as well being introduced to some of these varying topics uh, that they might not think about in the music field. So. Dr. Craig's experiences and insights into his work are valuable resources for the young musician to learn from. His constant efforts to create well-rounded musicians who will benefit from the skills music teaches outside of the music field has allowed him to make an incredible impact on young musicians' lives, including mine. It was truly an honor to be able to study with him and a joy to be able to have this kind of conversation with him. I want to thank you all for listening again, and if there was anything that stood out to you during this episode, or if you enjoy hearing these types of perspectives and stories, please share this podcast and consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts and follow on Spotify. If you have any comments, questions, or ideas for future guests on the podcast, feel free to reach out via Instagram at tyler.mead or email me at tcmusic.tyler at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening to Music Educated, and remember to be on the lookout for next week's episode.